Well, welcome, Lion Lamb. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 5. And we're going to start at the beginning there in a familiar passage. It says there, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It has been said that there is perhaps no other passage in the Scripture so deeply spiritual, fundamentally doctrinal, and yet so commonly practical and hence so profoundly meaningful as the words of Jesus that we know as the Beatitudes, which is Latin for blessed. At Lion and Lamb Church, we focus on authenticity. And in Matthew 5, 1 through 16, we learn from Christ both the inner state of mind and heart without which Christian discipleship is disingenuous, phony. But we also are exposed to the outward manifestation of conduct uh, and character, which are the witness of genuine discipleship. The Beatitudes open the longest single recorded exposition of truth by our Savior, called the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up three whole chapters. The sermon is often used as a source of quips by Christians and non-Christians alike, such as, they're salt of the earth folks, or the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, or certainly this is the little song, the wise man built his house upon a rock, and the all-time favorite, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, are the words of Jesus mere catchphrases? Uh, when he spoke, Jesus didn't teach kind of on the surface. He always went very deep, and his listeners always had to go very deep to understand the core of what he was teaching. So, could the Sermon on the Mount have a much deeper meaning than we give it credit for? Now, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole has created a lot of controversy among Christians. 
Some modern liberal theologians teach that your salvation depends on keeping these directives. And in effect, this is the sum and substance of the gospel. Others see this not as gospel, but as law, and conclude that Jesus is making clear the true sense of the law as opposed to the distorted interpretations of the Jewish scribes and rabbis. Still others acknowledge the spiritual truth in the sermon, but they pass on application today, contending that it is simply too difficult to attain in this present age. I simply can't turn the other cheek. Some among the dispensationalists, <clears throat> a group with which, which affected my early views, consider the Sermon on the Mount as a constitution only for the subjects of the millennial kingdom and which cannot apply to present-day believers. Now, I'm mindful of the reality that probably all of us are greatly influenced by our early teachers. And based upon the makeup of Lion and Lamb, I have no doubt that many of us were tutored by godly dispensationalists, perhaps others by godly uh, pastors from the Reformed tradition, as I have been exposed to as well. Or perhaps <clears throat> you went to a very liberal church, as I did growing up. But taking great care to offend all, I don't agree with any of these interpretations. <laughs> uh, I don't see this as gospel or law, and I simply cannot shake the notion that some of these folks effectively portray Jesus as saying, I present for your viewing pleasure this vast, lush, green pastures, but don't partake, don't graze. Unlike all other of Jesus' teachings, this is not for you, you dumb sheep. Now, don't get me wrong. According to the Good Shepherd, we are dumb sheep. But whatever Jesus intended as to direct application of this sermon, which debate will settle in eternity, this scripture is nonetheless profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness today. My family studied the Sermon on the Mount in their homeschooling curriculum for many years. This study did not make us experts. It did kindle a much deeper appreciation for the riches that it contains and prompted me to further study this oft-quoted but seldom-taught passage to see what other nuggets of wisdom it might yield. So my plan, anyway, is to start through the Beatitudes and teaching once every six or eight weeks. It, 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 I might get it in in under 18 months. Uh, but I'll have to say I chose a title for the series, The B-Attitudes. Kind of cheesy. I think I must have gotten it from VeggieTales or something like that. <laughs> but for somehow, they got it right because that title incorporates the inner attitude that you've got to have as a believer, as a disciple, and being what that attitude is in the, in the outward. I found a little book by a guy named George Lawler, himself a dispensationalist, who in the 1970s was a professor of Greek and Bible at uh, Cedarville College in Ohio. And the name of the book is The, the Beatitudes Are For Today. And this little work has been helpful in kind of uh, sorting through some of the loose thoughts rumbling around up here 
concerning how we might mine this vein of gold wisdom for application today. Lawler observes that this passage is not basic fundamental law. Law cannot produce the state of blessedness laid out in the text. Rather, the quality of life described is the necessary product of grace alone. Jesus states the outward legal requirements of the law and then carries his listeners beyond the letter of the law to the true spirit and intent of the law. And we all know that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. How? That's exactly the point. We cannot, in our own strength, live up to the lifestyle portrayed by Jesus in this sermon. That's exactly why we desperately need him. So, the life of the believer described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a life of grace and glory, which comes from God alone, not by our own power and efforts. Now, to make this quality of life a product of man's human efforts, as does the liberal, is the height of overestimation of man's ability and underestimation of his depravity. To relegate this entire passage to a millennial lifestyle, as do the hyper-Calvinist, excuse me, hyper-dispensationalist, is to rob the church of her greatest treasure in Christian living. And for these, this latter group, it might be helpful to point out that the world of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be restricted to the life of the future kingdom since it includes tax collectors, thieves, unjust officials, hypocrites, and false prophets. Jesus made it clear that the Spirit of Christ goes beyond outward, the outward demand of the law. The Christian, though not under the law, is to live above the law. Not above the law in the sense that we would attribute to a corrupt politician, but by a higher standard, the spirit of the law. Paul reminds us that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor at Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, known primarily because he advocated evangelicals leaving the Anglican church. Commenting on the distinction between the relationship of law and grace, he observed, Some so emphasize the law as to turn the gospel of Christ with its glorious liberty into nothing but a collection of moral maxims. It's all law to them, and there is no grace left. They so talk of the Christian that it becomes pure legalism, and there's no grace in it. Let us remember also that it is equally possible to overemphasize grace at the expense of the law, as again, to have something which is not the gospel of the New Testament. Uh, Jones goes on to note that the Sermon on the Mount and the message of the kingdom do have a definite application to the Christian today. It was preached to the people who were meant to practice it not only at that time, but ever afterwards. In the Sermon on the Mount, the life of a born-again believer is taught by our Savior. While the Sermon on the Mount is not a way of salvation, neither is it only a message to those under the law, for it obviously goes beyond the law. It presents Christian discipleship, which can be wrought in the soul of an individual only by the power of God. Instead of instructing us how to be saved, it tells us what it is like to be saved. If basic truths are reiterated everywhere, uh, throughout the New Testament epistles. There is no fundamental contrast between the message of this sermon and the message of Paul. 
both in an agreement that the just shall live by faith. Virtually every section of the sermon is repeated in substance elsewhere throughout the New Testament. There is nothing here to indicate that this message is to be limited in its application only to the people of Israel. This morning in, uh, in Sunday school, John, Jonathan Runyon asked, what does it mean to be an authentic Christian? Something that's important to him. Well, this passage teaches us exactly that. The main point I'm trying to make here is this. We as Christians involved in the church have to stop making excuses for ignoring the teaching of Christians or teaching of Jesus in this text because we all have something vital to learn from the sermon. So, let's get started. The first verse says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. And seeing the multitudes. What does that signify? Is it just a preface telling us what he mechanically did before he spoke? Or does it tell us something more? Why is the phrase there? Well, it might be helpful to look at context. Okay? If you look at Luke chapter 6, you'll see the same event, but with much more background. And in that chapter, you'll see that the disciples of Jesus glean from the field and he heals on the Sabbath, invoking the wrath of the Jewish leaders. But these disciples are not the twelve, because the next thing that happens is that Jesus goes up into a mountain to pray, comes down somewhere, perhaps to a plateau, and then he selects the twelve, and he calls them the twelve apostles. Luke goes on with his description there in verse 17. Jesus came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples, a distinct group, and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. All the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And then he launches into what we, we would term the Sermon on the Mount. So my question to you is, what did Jesus see? We might want to look at other texts to get a clue, like Matthew 9. And there it says, starting in verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. This is a different circumstance, a different time. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. When he looked upon the multitudes, it seems to me that he saw, he saw lost sheep. Some in physical misery, uh, some who just their lives were a mess. You know, maybe the wino. Maybe he saw the guy in the Truth Project who ran the tattoo parlor. Uh, he also saw probably all those people who were on their way to spending eternity in hell. So, 
what did, what did he do? How did he respond? He had compassion for them, meaning to have passion with or for someone else. My question to you now is, what do you see when you go into public? My job takes me a lot of different places, a lot of different contexts regularly. When I walk down a street in a, in a small town or when I'm in a courthouse, I am often caught up in my job focused on things, perhaps conflict, frankly, getting the right papers to the right place, or, to be honest with you, making money, which is what I'm doing the things I'm being paid to do. And I don't believe it's a sin to make a living. In fact, I'm kind of commanded to do that, to provide for my family. But can I honestly say that I consistently see people as Jesus sees them? For me, that's a hard thing. Yet, when Jesus appeared to the apostles after the resurrection, he told them in John 20, starting at verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, this implies to me that we are to carry out the work that he started. I think it's called the Great Commission. Would it be helpful in carrying out that mission that we did as he did and that we see the lost with compassion as he did. In John 4, the apostles are trying to get Jesus to take a bite, to eat something, but he responds to them that he has food that they don't know about, baffling them. And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. In other words, we can put it off. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Going back to Matthew 9, the analogy is repeated, starting in verse 37, where he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, taking all this together, it seems to me that Jesus gave his disciples something to do with a sense of urgency to look with compassion on the fields of the lost, the multitudes, if you will. Some of us will sow, others will reap, but all of us will have an important role in bringing in the harvest. Did Jesus see anything else? Well, let's look at the next verse. And he opened his mouth and taught them Who's them? The disciples. Okay, all right. Looks like they're getting a little drowsy up there. All right, so let's have a youth break, all right? Students, I want you to raise your hand. If you have ever said, not yet, <laughs> if you've ever said, why do I have to do math I will never use this, as all my kids have said. 
All right, Phil's got his hand up. Quite a few. All right. Did you know that math is a biblical activity? Oh, come on. You can't spiritualize everything, especially math. We all know that that's the prime example of a secular subject. Right? No. Seriously. The word mathematics comes from the same Greek word translated as disciple, matheitai. So, just as a disciple is one who puts himself under discipline of his teacher and becomes a learner of absolute laws and principles, so the subject math teaches a personal discipline and obedience to the absolute laws and principles of that subject. Math teaches us to think logically and orderly, just as God desires for us to see through illogical arguments and explain the hope that lies within us in an understandable fashion. When my kids ask for help with their math, it drives them crazy that I don't do the problem in front of them, but instead I first try to explain the rule that applies to that problem so that they can do other problems like those. Now, parents, when your kids ask the why math question, you've got a better answer then because it's an assignment and I told you to do it. Uh, more broadly, though, we should never concede any subject to the purely secular. The Bible, Bible covers all of life. Well, okay, that's your break. Who's included in the word disciple in these passages? While it's in certain passages, it talks about just the apostles here because there are other disciples present who have, uh, there is no indication that he's talking just to the disciples, the apostles, but rather to all who have believed on his message and received him as Savior and Messiah who were present on the mountain with Jesus. The word disciple means a learner, not just beginners, but even wiser, experienced learners who know that they haven't figured it all out yet. Hopefully, disciple includes all of us. So the disciples came to Jesus to be taught. The Greek word for came implies the disciples approached intentionally with a definite purpose of learning. And would that we could come to hear his word with such a purpose and intent. In John 6, when Jesus was speaking some hard sayings that were difficult for some of those following to accept, some decided to kind of drop away. It got a little bit tough for them. So Jesus asked the twelve if they wanted to leave as well. Peter responded emphatically, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. As imperfect as old Peter was, he was truly a disciple. But there is something else that Jesus saw. If you look at Luke 6, verse 20, it says, And turning his gaze, or he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples. And again, if you merge the Luke 6 and the Matthew 5 passage, the sense would be something like, Having lifted up his eyes unto his disciples, and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. As if insignificant as it may seem, we have something to learn from this. Again, the Greek for lifted up his eyes denotes definite and particular action, not 
incidental action. So he looked at his disciples, seeing those immediately around him, fixing upon his true disciples and seeing in them the type of genuine spirit of all disciples who he would call out of the masses of unbelievers and disingenuous followers throughout the future. Then he taught his disciples how to follow him if they wished to do his work. So what does this entail for a true disciple? Lord willing, we will find in the Beatitudes, first, the internal state of mind and heart, which is the result of the regenerative will of God. In other words, salvation by grace and essential of true discipleship. As a result of that inward regeneration, an outward conduct and demeanor follows, which is the witness and evidence of true discipleship. This is how true disciples should expect to be taught. Now, others may hear, and they often do hear, but remain stubborn in their unbelief. You might ask, how can those who don't believe comprehend teachings like, blessed are the poor in spirit, they that mourn, the meek, the reviled, the persecuted. To them, this is craziness. It's counterintuitive to all the self-seeking, pleasure-gobbling culture that they come from. It's exactly the opposite of what they're looking for. If this were a gospel track, it would send them running away. This is not for unbelievers. This is directed, directed at the believers of the church. Those that worship in spirit and in truth, it places believers in the deeply spiritual characteristics of the devoted, God-honoring daily walk, which true disciples then and now are called. Now, how about some application? Does the desire to introduce others to Christ permeate your whole being or terrify you? How can we say that we care about the lost when we make no real effort to even try to reach them? How many people truly try to even talk to their neighbors? If we become so engrossed in our own problems and our comforts, we will never reach out to the lost. Do an evaluation and compare the actual time you spend on TV and computer screens uh, with the time that you spend for something that counts for eternity. Jesus set the example by going out to the multitudes, didn't he? Can we do anything less? What can we do? We can certainly pray for the loss and that the Lord will bring more laborers. Chrissy does something. She makes cookies and or other treats on holidays and takes them around to the neighbors, usually with a, a note or a gospel track or, or something related to the season. She's also held uh, child evangelism clubs in, her, in our home from time to time. Uh, it all starts with making a connection and being friendly. If you're not comfortable teaching, you can invite your neighbors to church to be taught. Some of us sow and some of us reap. 
We can certainly encourage missionaries, and we do, by prayer, letters of encouragement, and financially. But let compassion to save the lost motivate you to action. We hear from the Marines and from the Word of God that pain is gain. That through trials, the Lord teaches how to handle problems so that we have the knowledge and the sympathetic compassion to help others. We read in Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32. But remember the former days when being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The Lord can use our painful past, our experience, our trials, our tribulations, to help minister healing into the lives of other folks. We become the laborers of the Lord, harvesting souls for His kingdom. If we're failing to see people as Jesus does, it's because we haven't yet learned to develop godly compassion. Jesus had compassion for the weak in faith, and he still reached out to save them. He fed the 5,000 by taking care of their physical needs first, and then their spiritual needs. Find a way to help others so that you might reach their hearts. Again, what do you see? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this teaching, which has banged Vincent in the head harder than probably any of these folks, and convicted me of my lack of compassion. Lord, I pray that it would, that your word would sink through to our hearts and that we would truly see others as Jesus sees them. Lord, I thank you for this faithful body and I know, Lord, that you will do the work to bring about that motivation in their lives and in their hearts. Lord, please inhabit our praises today as we go to worship now. And Lord, help us always to follow you, to bring honor and glory to you and you alone. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.